This summer we've been tuned into the story of David. We started with David's call, which surprised everyone, including his dad Jesse, the, the prophet Samuel who was making the call, and, and definitely the current king Saul. We're given details in those early stories, little keys to, to let us know that no matter how comfortable we get thousands of years later with the idea of King David, the whole David story is not so much about David, but about God. For, for seminary students that are just starting, uh, I was really helped early on in my seminary education by a professor who, who just uh, basically said, what will help you in, in any course or any learning, and I think this goes for, for non-seminary students, is to, to remember it's about God, stupid. Like, that, that's it. That's all you need to know. It's about God, stupid. The God who chose David, the God whose presence is with his people, the God whose spirit is upon David and not Saul, that's the main character, that God. Even as David, David, throughout this summer, we've read that even as David does noble things, even as he does despicable things, even as he opens himself up to be persuaded, remember that story about Abigail and Nabal? Even as he operates in the uncertainty of the wilderness, even as he operates within the unsafety of Saul hunting his head. Even as he navigates disappointment of his life, his career goal of giving God a home, he, the, the temple dwelling that gets taken from him. Even as, um, from our text last week to, to this week, even as he navigates the, the family drama of having a son in Absalom who wants to kill him, even through all that, God is there. Eugene Peterson says, the single most characteristic thing about David is God. David believed in God, he thought about God, he imagined God, he addressed God, he prayed to God. The largest part of David's existence wasn't David, it was God. Consider that description. Like, how do, we, how do you get that on your tombstone? <clears throat> your tombstone, right? Like, the largest part of Katie's life was not Katie, but God. Or the largest part of Joe's life was not Joe, but was God. If that's your goal, how do you, how do you reverse engineer that? How do, you, how do you start now to be like John the Baptist and build a life around the fact that God should increase, but I might decrease? How do you do that? All the while growing and increasing and ever expanding in who God has made you, who God has called you to be. I think this is the subtext. This is the story that lies underneath the whole David story. And that's the paradox of this life with God that we're called into. That it's, it's simultaneously a death to the life we've known and a birth into a life bigger than we could have known or could have imagined for ourselves. This is not a, some sort of faith in, in the stopgap of what we can imagine, but it's a, transformation of the renew, it's a transformation by the renewing of our minds. This sort of life 
it, the other paradox of this is that it's a, it's a narrowing and a widening. I, I think I've shared before that one of my barriers um, to, to coming to faith, mine and my best friends in high school, was that having that kind of faith that, that our, our friends were kind of witnessing to and, 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 and um, offering to us, that, that Christ was offering to us, is that it seemed too small, right? It seemed crazy, especially to us, um, like 17-year-olds in Daytona Beach, Florida, and like we, we really loved alternative rock music, and that's what they called indie rock music before they called it that. Um, it seemed crazy that loving Jesus meant that we'd have to get rid of like our Pearl Jam CDs and Radiohead CDs, you know? Like that seemed so absurd to us. Not just sell them, because that would keep them in circulation. We had to like damage them, right? Like break our CDs. And I'm not making a blanket statement here because I think entering into life of life with God might actually entail that sort of destroying the life that you knew, and like you might not get it back. But it also probably means that your desires and even your taste and everything is going to have to be reformed and, and reconfigured towards God rather than away from God. And that way I think it is both a narrowing, a focusing, a repentance and a surrender, but it's also an opening, it's a widening. It's a renewal and it's, it's, it's like having our vision technicolored when, when we encounter God. I can tell you now that both my buddy Paul and I, we've had our imaginations and our palettes for music and, and arts just exploded wide open precisely because of our faith in Jesus, not despite. I think like David, we find our lives, while not perfect by any means, now held and located and empowered by God's own heart as we pursue and as we're pursued by living God. So we arrive at today's passage, a song. In fact, it's a song that I guess was so good that it got repurposed, repackaged as Psalm 18. And we find in it a, a full-throated David singing to a God who delivered him when his enemies within and without, threatened his life. David has walked with his God. He has stood for his God. He has been rebuked by his God. God has still been the main character. And to me, when, when we're able to read these songs, that's really great because I, I feel like that's a little bit of a, um, a, a little bit of a removal, a little bit of a vulnerability uh, of, of the mask that we kind of put up normally. And so it's, it's almost, it's revelatory the way like hearing a grown child talk about their parent is revelatory. Like when they're not asked to describe their parent, just the, the things they take for granted about their mom or their dad. It's, it's revelatory um, because he, David has had years and years, he's had a life to develop this intimacy, this personal experience. He says, God is my shield and my salvation's strength, my place of safety and my shelter. In God, David has felt safety and salvation. When all is crashing around, 
when all is crashing down around David, David ducks into the cove of God's care. Imagine that. Uh, picture that for yourself. He also speaks of God's nearness. He says, in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to my God. God heard my voice in his temple. My cry for help reached his ears. That temple, of course, is, is a place of overlap. It's where heaven and earth meet. God is not aloof. That temple is not esoteric or isolated or apart from us. That place, that overlap is for us. It includes us. God is within an earshot. He's ready to come to our aid, like a mother intent on caring for her daughters and her sons. That's how God stands at attention, not as our servant, but as our parent. It's curious to me, then, what this care then stirs up for David as he envisions the Almighty. The earth quaking, the skies convulsing, David's poetics of God's anger. This is a side of God that we don't like to think about. We, we kind of bury this lead. We forget it. It's a part of God which doesn't seem that appropriate for the polite conversation of our devotion or our evangelism. That God gets mad sometimes. And that's good enough news for David to write a song about it. God gets mad sometimes. The next line of David's hymn opens up this like apocalyptic deluge, right? Like just a rainstorm telling of, of smoke flaring from God's angry nostrils, fire coming from his mouth, God the dragon or something like that. Maybe this is like an ancient Near Eastern like prefiguring of our beloved hit the bull, win a stake, you know? Like that's what I like to think about when I think about smoke flaring from God's nostrils, but I doubt that that was what David had in mind. I am thankful, though, um, last week when we got together for a steering group meeting that I was reminded by Joe Longarino about this great little device in Hebrew when we talk about God's anger. It talks about God's anger by talking about God's nose. Of course, I don't mean that God literally has a nose any more than God literally has ever, everlasting arms that we lean on, right? But in Exodus 34, after Moses' anger with God's people's sin leads him to crack the commandments, the first draft, I suppose, and then Moses has to go back and, and chisel out replacements for these, we're told that the Lord passes in front of Moses and proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. What's hidden in that translation is that amazing Hebrew phrase that Joe reminded me of, that we, we read it as slow to anger, but it translates literally that God is long of nose. That God has a long nose. So shake the Pinocchio imagery out of your head. We're talking more about 
that God's nose is long in order to give him patience. He has a long fuse. When God gets mad, and he does, God gets mad, but he, he does so with infinitely pure motives and per, in a perfectly calibrated sense of justice. When God gets mad, though, that heat gets diffused because his nose is long. He's long-suffering, slow to anger. Another David song, song puts it this way, Psalm 103. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. God doesn't treat us with the wrath being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice and lust and idolatry. This is Romans 1 stuff. He doesn't do that because he's got this long nose of divine patience and care. No, for David and for us, God's anger is good news. God can and does get mad. That doesn't make him like Zeus, who's like pure, capricious power. He just walks around in the heavens throwing lightning bolts, right? It makes him more like Aslan, right? Not at all safe, but the very definition of good. It means that he has ears to hear, that God is, is a counselor. But it also means he has hands to fix, like a, like a surgeon, or armor to protect, like a, like a fortress. It means that God has plans for this world, and when they get disrupted or disturbed, he gets mad at that. It means that he's not neutral. It means that God is not able to be co-opted. David's appeals to God's anger are dangerous because at various moments in David's life with God, that anger has been aimed squarely at David's sin and the injustice that he's done. So David knows about this anger. This really disturbs the picture I have in my head of God as like this bleeding heart sympathizer. Sure, the Injustice and the violence and hurt caused by sin makes God grieve. We see that embodied in the prophets who weep over Jerusalem, King David's city, for Israel's sin. But as Professor Christina Cleveland has reminded us really powerfully, make no mistake, God is a God of justice. And that justice doesn't just end with sorrow but rage. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Anger is the fluid that love bleeds when cut. I guess that's probably good that God can get mad. God is love. This is the rage of a parent. Not only watching something being done to their child, but also watching their child's own beloved identity being messed with, being threatened. Maybe even watching their son as the perpetrator, their daughter as the one causing hurt. I know when I watch my daughter doing something to my son, it makes me mad at one of them and for the other one. 
Like that's the sort of divine parenting that we're getting. I, I try not to talk about myself as God, but that's the, the, the <laughs> I, and I don't think that was a delusion of grandeur, but I do think there's something telling of us if, if me, a dad who is just trying to figure it out as, as we go on the fly, if I can like to some degree get that right, I think God gets it right every time um, and maybe has planted that in us a little bit. When God gets mad, like when, when parents get mad, like maybe even to a degree when one of your parents got mad, I think it's a testimony of how wildly God is invested with this world that he's made, this world that he's remaking. So what do we do with this? What do we do with understanding and remembering, in some cases, that God gets angry? Well, I think, for one, I, I think there's power in just meditating on that and in, in just wrestling with that. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to, to journal about this, to write, like David, to write songs about this. Maybe you're not a songwriter, but I think we're all, if you have a pen and a piece of paper, a songwriter. Do that in your prayers. I think understanding that God gets mad sometimes helps us grow in our understanding and empathy for the anger that others show. And injustice they're personally experiencing that maybe we don't get. When we see someone raging, when we see someone rioting, uh, we, we maybe just a little bit begin to understand what God feels like at injustice. Even if, even if that rage and that, that anger is not being expressed very well at all, knowing that God gets mad sometimes might help us see the image of God in some of these other people. It might help us empathize. It might help us... Um, join with them in, in some way, in some productive and, and proactive way. I think also understanding that God gets mad sometimes helps us explore our own anger, um, explore those ways that, that what we're mad at, <laughs> when, you, when you understand that God gets mad sometimes, I think it can really relativize your own anger and make you ask the question, is what I'm mad at worth me being mad at if God gets mad? Like, <laughs> is it a God type of anger? Uh, I have a friend who says I, that he has only two emotions, righteousness and anger, and never the two shall meet, right? But <laughs> when, we can, when we can kind of examine ourselves and examine our own anger, how that gets expressed, what it gets expressed at, and compare it to God, to, to ask God to, to graft it into his own anger to make it pure. I think that's part of our discipleship. Maybe we also examine how we express anger. We also maybe, maybe a good question to ask, how long is my nose, God? Like how patient am I? How slow to anger am I? And what do I need to do about it? You can ask also what causes us to disengage in our anger. Um, I think that's practices like this are really important for us at this cultural moment because this sort of engagement, this sort of personal interaction is endangered and on the verge of extinction. It's at this point when our, that our brains are actually being rewired by technology. We thought technology was a tool, but it's actually 
changing us. It's making us different. It's making us interact differently. So there's this phenomenon called ghosting. Raise your hand if you ever heard of this. Okay. Yeah. It's this phenomenon called ghosting. Only in our technological age could this occur. You see, ghosting, if you're unfamiliar, is when you're dating someone or friends with someone and and you essentially break up with them, but you don't let them know. You just disappear. Like you become a ghost to them. Uh, I think that's really problematic for a lot of reasons. Uh, not to mention, like, ghosts don't have bodies, and we have bodies, uh, which means that even if you're mad or even if you're scared, maybe you should engage with someone face-to-face. The, you, if you ghost, you never contact someone, and... and I don't want to always assume that this happens in anger, but I can imagine a case where you get so mad that you somehow uh, logic your way into that it's it's safer and healthier if I just completely disengage and that person that makes me mad can no longer make me mad and I also can't stand in my anger or something like that. For all intents and purposes, we become ghosts rather than embodied people in our own images and a, um, in God's own image. An article in Psychology Today talked about this, the damage that this does. So, so we try to do it to prevent damage. But this actually doesn't just cause emotional damage, but it actually causes physical damage. We, our, our brains, which are part of our bodies, compute this as like, physical harm and physical pain to the point where like if you get broke up with via ghosting if you take Advil it'll actually help you cope it'll take away that pain and the the pain that you feel at this like ambiguous disconnection this kind of passive aggression right but we might say that if David's psalm or this passage from 2 Samuel 22, that kind of sums up David's whole life with God. If it tells us anything about God, is that this God that gets mad sometimes is infinitely engaged. That he hears us and is in his safekeeping and in his anger deeply relationally invested with us, with creation, with each of us as his creatures. He's invested enough in us not to disappear from us. He's invested enough in us to to send his only son. To send the true king to usher in his kingdom by experiencing the very worst of sin and death. The very worst of abandonment and loneliness. To drink wrath that comes about from sin. To drink that to the dregs. To be broken on a cross, his blood and water pouring out from his side. I can't help but wonder if Jesus was being, if, if being tried in, in um, if you were there, if you were there while Jesus was being tried in Herod's kind of kangaroo court and you were watching as he was being set up by the chief priests and, and you were there while he was being betrayed by his own friends, can't help but wonder if anyone had kind of the divine foresight to look at that whole spectacle and just be angry, right? To just look at it and just be mad at the injustice of it all. We sing cross songs, and I love these songs that we sing about the wondrous cross and the old rugged cross. We marvel at the grace and the love and the mercy 
that we've been gifted at the cross. But did anyone just look up at that cross and just get angry? Angry that sin's cause and sin's cure had to be so focused exactly on Jesus? Anyone just get livid that victory had to come through Jesus being victimized? Did anyone just get really short-nosed and hot and impatient at the injustice by which Jubilee, the forgiveness of our debts, had to come about? I think God did. I do. I, I think God looked at that, and for all the divine providence and purpose that was in that, I think God got mad, but instead of tearing the earth from its foundations, I think he tore the temple curtain that separated humanity from him from bottom to top. I, I, I think he tore that instead. He tore, he tore down any dividing wall of hostility or separation, and I think he allowed us to come to him, allowed us to continue to cry out to him and it, that he would hear us in his temple. I think we're invited into this full relational life, like David, to live in it, to walk around in it. I think, like David, we're invited to be its biggest proponent, write beautiful songs about it with our words and with our lives. Even as we sin and even as we struggle and even as we learn and fail and ask for forgiveness, we're invited to embrace this Jesus life, the life that Jesus live in, lives and calls us into that, the life that Jesus connects us to. This is an abundant life. This abundant life of Jesus based on the asymmetry of giving all of ourselves and getting all of God because of Christ. Towards the end of our passage today, I think it might have been a seed kind of for St. Irenaeus' famous maxim that the glory of God is humanity fully alive, that God is most God when we are most human that God delights and we bear witness to that delight simply by regaining and living our full humanity in Christ. David sings, You are my lamp, Lord. The Lord illumines my darkness. With you I can charge into battle. With my God I can leap over a wall. And pray with me. Father, I, I pray that everyone in this room might be, might be catapulted, <laughs> might be made new and, and fully human, might be renewed in our lives of prayer and repentance, of obedience and, and discipleship. Pray that we might have our eyes opened and our paths well lit, I pray by connecting with you and in engaging with you and, and not fearing you that we might become more fully human, that we might inherit eternal life, that kind of eternal life that starts now. I pray that by engaging with and understanding your anger more and better, that we might have a fuller picture of you, 
a fuller picture of your grace, a fuller picture of your sacrifice as you sent Jesus, a fuller picture of your risk and of your care, a fuller experience of your safety, of your loving kindness and your patience. I pray that those attributes rub off on us as we as we seek to grow in Christ's likeness. Lord, give us courage to open our lives up to you even as you protect us. Give us courage to open our hearts up to you and allow you to examine them and, and to rid us of, of things that don't need to be there and, and to grow in us and cultivate in us things that do. Father, like David, put your spirit upon us. And like David, help us be known as folks whose, whose lives are less about them and more about you as people after your own heart. Amen.